Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. This episode is being brought to you by the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the premier self-protection course that teaches you everything you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world as you were growing up, but weren't. If you're like me, you were taught how to cross the street and how to swim, but probably heard very little, if anything at all, about the dangers you might encounter at work, in your relationships, or just out and about in the world. Maybe that's because your parents, like mine, didn't know what to teach you. Or maybe it was just assumed that bad things might happen to other people, but not to you. This is the program I wish had existed when my own daughters were growing up. Heck, it's what I needed to learn and never had a clue about in my younger days. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight, and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and you get a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. Get yourself over to www.cynthiajolicur.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur. Today, I am super pumped because I get to interview somebody I have been hoping to talk to for quite a long time. Her name is Tammy Yard McCracken, and we connected through Rory Miller's community ever since I heard about her and started following what she was up to and hearing about her from some colleagues. I have been super determined to make a connection and to get her on this podcast because she has got a ton to talk about. Tammy started out as a special ed teacher in the 1980s and eventually shifted gears to counseling psychology, going into practice in 1993. She had some martial arts training here and there, tagging along with her kids so that she knew what they were experiencing in the classes. Eventually, she became a committed practitioner of martial arts when she realized that there was just so much healing that survivors of violence could experience in her office working with her as a therapist. She started investigating combat systems and landed on Krav Maga, eventually becoming an instructor, and then she started exploring the world of self-defense as well. Now, she does this full-time, running a training center in Northern Virginia, and traveling, teaching seminars, including violence dynamics, and working with Rory Miller's Chiron training. On top of that, she is launching a really cool project called 500 Rising, with a goal to create training and collaboration with other powerful voices in self-defense, 
to destroy the statistics of violence against women. So it is my incredible pleasure and great honor to welcome Tammy Yard McCracken to the show. Welcome, Tammy. Wow, thank you. That's I, I sort of feel like after an introduction like that, that maybe the show should be over. So I don't just... <laughs> Don't destroy everything that you just said. That was was very kind. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait. I think there, we're going to cover so much ground today, and you have so much to share. And hopefully with my platform, we can get your message out to more people. So I am super, super excited to have you here. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Oh, my privilege. This is awesome. Let's do this. All right. Well, I like to start things out with kind of a lightning round of questions just to get you sort of relaxed and in the mood and get the juices flowing. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. Okay. What book are you currently reading? I am currently reading about five. Um, I'm, I'm a little ADD when it comes to books. I would say the one that I picked up last was Homo Deus, which is one of, um, of all, I always have to look up his, his name to say it right, but um, he's written a couple of things. He wrote uh, Sapiens and, um, and Homo Deus is the next one that he's written. So I'm reading that one. So can you say a little bit more about what that is? Uh, yeah. So he is, I think he's a brilliant mind. And it's a, in a way, a sequel to Sapiens, which is the short version of the title. It's Sapiens and then colon, some long ass title of, you know, um, history of human beings. And Homo, Homo Deus is a projection forward. And I'm, I'm only about partway through it at this point. And he's looking at sort of how we've evolved both, you know, somewhat biologically, but also socially and culturally. And that one of the things that struck me in the first part of the book is that human beings, if we go back millennia and millennia ago and brought one of, one of us from them forward, They'd be looking at us and going, wow, we've achieved godlike status. We can fly, not on our own, but we can fly. We can, we can do all of these things that were attributed historically to the gods. And that as a result of that's the place that we've reached, there's already research going on out, you know, in kind of the dark corners of the, of the scientific community that is looking at expanding dramatically expanding our lifespan. So approaching some concept of immortality and all of the kind of gene splicing stuff and designer babies. And so he's just, he's doing a projection of, you know, what, what we are as in mass, a species prone towards in the future. And then there's, you know, some cautionary tales in it and stuff like that. It's very interesting. Wow. It sounds very mind expanding. Um, and a little mind blowing too, when you think about it, because of the, the things he points out, like, Hey, we've already done some of this stuff that most of us are talking about as science fiction. And when he, he goes through and everything is, everything he writes is vetted. It's stuff that he's sourced. And, you know, so you go through and you read some of his examples. It's like, Oh, huh. You're right. <laughs> That's what we want to say. It's all sci-fi, but we're actually, uh, you know, collaterally pushing into it. And, you know, what does that mean for us? Right. And what are some of the big ethical questions that we're going to face in the next, let's say, 20 to 50 years? So well, very interesting. Well, story. there's a lot to chew on in that. I, I hope that you don't read that like right before bed. 
<laughs> yeah, I try not to. <laughs> if I read something like that before I tried to go to sleep, I would be up all night just with my brain spinning and thinking and coming up with ideas and wondering. So what a, what a great book to be reading. Uh, do you want to share one of the other ones of your five that you're also reading? Um, let's see. What else, what else am I currently reading? Um, I am making my way um, back through Tim Larkin's When Violence is the Answer. I've, I've read it before, but it's been a long time. And his work's come up in a couple of discussion groups um, with you know varying opinions. And so I thought, well, I'll revisit that. So I'm flipping back through that one as well. Those are the two on my nightstand at the moment. Oh, that's great. Okay, what was your most unusual experience as a child? Oh, wow, what a good question. Um, most unusual experience as a child. Hmm. Um, I, I would say... I, um, maybe and this is because this is a, a change in the times. I, when I was like eight, nine, ten years old, my folks had this tiny little cabin out in the middle of the nowhere in the Ozarks. And I used to go hiking by myself and with a watch because, you know, pre cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So the watch was, the watch rule was you have to be back by X time or we send a search party for you. Um, <laughs> And, and so when I think about it now, it's like I, I tell people like, oh, yeah, I was like 9, 10. I used to go hike, hiking in the Ozark Mountains by myself. And people look at me like both me and my parents have completely lost my mind. <laughs> um, and, you know, so maybe by comparison, unusual. Um, I, I just spent a tremendous amount of time like out like that growing up. So, yeah, that's great. That's an amazing way to as a child, discover how to deal with feeling a little bit unsafe or worried about, is this okay? You know, and to, to discover within yourself something you can rely on when there isn't anybody else around to kind of swoop in and, and rescue you. And I think that's something that modern kids really are missing out on because every moment for most kids is highly supervised and they don't get that exploratory out in the world, you know, kind of on their own, left to their own resources experience anymore. So what a, what a great thing to be able to do as a kid. Yeah. When I think about it now, it's, I didn't think anything of it when I was growing up because we hiked together, my mom, my dad, and I all the time. And then once they felt like I had a clue, you know, they cut me loose and, but I had compass skills and I knew how to follow paths and when the paths might mean something, you know, how to kind of track a little bit, you know, and to pay attention to certain kinds of tracks in the soft ground. Like that's probably, that's a very big kitty. <laughs> I think I will, <laughs> I think I will turn around and go the other way. And, you know, we just, as, you know, as parents, we don't do who cuts their kids loose at that age anymore out in the middle of the mountains. So, yeah, and, and what parents really take the time with their kids to give them the knowledge and the tools and the experience you know, to build the capacity to do things on their own like that. I mean, that's really, in, in my opinion, that's what parenthood is largely about. And yet doing that in environments where there are dangers 
and preparing our kids for dangers seems to be kind of omitted for the most part now. Yeah, I, in my experience with the folks that I know who have littles, like young children, there's um, a little bit of a sample bias because here at the gym, we do, we have a kids program. And so the parents that I see here are a little bit differently minded in the sense that they're, they're putting their kids on our mat and, you know, we're making contact and we're doing all kinds of the stuff that most people now want to shield their kids from. But outside of our little sample bias here, I think as a whole, there's been a very strong drift away from that. And that that's, it's concerning. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a big drift away from allowing children to take risks. Now, I remember my kids, they're all grown now. My youngest is 20. They all went to the local Waldorf school, which was just great. But there was a period of time where all of a sudden it was forbidden for them to climb one of the trees on the schoolyard that kids there had been climbing for ages. And all of a sudden it was like, no, 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 they can't, can't climb the tree. It's too dangerous. And there were a lot of parent discussions after that because it's like, well, how are they going to learn, you know, how to navigate if they don't ever get to try and if they can't take the risks? You're going to handicap your kids if you don't ever let them take risks. And then yeah. what I love about your story is your parents gave you preparation. And then when they saw in you that you'd reached a certain level, they were like, okay, off you go. You know, you know, you know how to to take some risks and we trust you to be able to know your limits or, you know, recover from potential mistakes and get yourself back home in time for dinner. Yeah, I'm really thankful for that experience now, particularly that I see that it's becoming unusual. Of course, I didn't think anything of it growing up. It was like, well, of course, this is what everybody does, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for thank you for sharing about that. My third question is, what is your favorite self-care practice? What is mine? Um, I have a couple. So I'm not the youngest person on the face of the planet. And, you know, what I do for a living is now, which is all the self-defense and um, isn't the nicest thing to on, on, an, on a body that doesn't heal as well as it used to. So I, I put myself on a deep tissue massage at least once a month. And I, I found a really cool place. I don't, they're a chain, but I don't know how prolific they are. It's called the stretch zone. So they're getting a little free advertising here Mm -hmm. and they're a storefront with folks who are trained through a series of basic physio dynamics. And they put you on the table that looks like a torture device because it's full of straps and things. And they stretch you in ways you cannot stretch yourself. And, um, you just make an appointment and go in and you say, Hey, this is what's tight. And they, they make it not tight anymore. So I do that about once or twice a month as well. I used to spend time with my kids, but they're like yours. Mine are flying the coop. So spend time with the spouse away from all the rest of humanity. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That, um, I just acquired a spouse not too long ago. And I have to admit that He's definitely one of my more important self-care practices, just getting to spend time with him. And I don't actually have to get away from people now because I, I pretty much bugged out of civilization and live up in the mountains. So we're we're now getting some time to just hang out and, and enjoy being together. And, and it, it is amazing how refreshing that can be. I'm, I'm curious about what you said 
um, about stretching them, people stretching you in ways that you can't stretch yourself. Like what? Yeah, I know. Right. Um, I, one of my students actually found this place. It's right here in our community. And so, you know, I Googled them and looked into them and like a lot of places that offer a client-based service that is not like medicine, you know, where you make an appointment with a, you know, a licensed caregiver, they do free sessions. So I went in and I was like, all right, put me on the table. Let's see what you do. And I was, I was very impressed. And cause I have some chronic stuff that is requires staying on top of it. And I'm not really good about that on my own. And it was, it's really interesting because they, it's like a massage table, but it's got these pockets where you stick your feet or straps that hold your hips down. And then they move you and stretch you in ways that you just can't do by yourself. It takes another body to move your, your body in that particular way. And, um, it was very effective. Yeah, that's an intriguing idea. I, I doubt there's anything like that up near me, but maybe for some of our listeners, they can go and look for something like that. That that sounds awesome. The only experience I have with something like that is stuff we used to do in karate where we would do partner stretching. Mm-hmm. And those, for me, were always excruciatingly painful. Yeah, I wouldn't say going to the stretch zone is fun. <laughs> it's certainly like... Not not something you're going like, oh, this is going to feel fantastic like a like a relaxing massage does. But it's so worth it on the back end. And, you know, very interesting concept. I don't know how long they'll be around as a company, but I'm a fan. Oh, that's great. Well, I'd like to dive a little bit into your path. I covered a little bit just in introducing you, but I know there's a lot more to your story than, than we shared in the introduction. So could you just paint a little bit of your journey from being a therapist and somebody who had a background in counseling psychology to, to where you are now. I'm really curious how, how that unfolded because it's an unusual path. Yeah, that I have gotten that feedback over the years. And again, you know, we don't, we don't have great perspective on ourselves always. And so I, in the beginning, I thought it was a very logical path until people looked at me and went, um, no, sister, no, 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 this is unusual. So when I started out as a therapist, I actually started out working in a very specific community because my undergrad was in deaf education. And so I worked in the deaf community. And when I became a therapist, primarily because there were very few people, I lived in Houston at the time. And big, massive city. And there were like two therapists who could directly serve anybody in the deaf community because everybody had to use an interpreter. And so I went that route and my private practice was exclusively working in the deaf community for a while. And I don't even remember now kind of which twist and turn things took that landed me into getting a lot of clients that I was working with out of domestic violence situations and which evolved into just the, the large overarching community of sexual violence, which is male and female as far as targeted victims to more criminal types of violence. And then when, and, and along the way, because private practice takes a long time to build and actually make money as an income. 
So most people who are in private practice have a day job as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked for about five years in what's called a residential treatment facility in Texas. And it's basically a, I should use the politically correct term or the more honest one. It's a long-term holding facility for children and young adults up to the age to 21 if they met special ed requirements that are have been kicked out of every place else. Therapeutic foster homes, group homes because of aggressive, violent um, behavior towards self and others. And so this was a group home type facility. There were about a dozen group homes that were owned by this facility. And then they provided on-site education and therapy services. And I got connected to them because they had a handful of deaf clients and they were just literally warehoused because nobody could do anything with them. And so I got, I got contacted to come in and kind of oversee the educational program for them and then to provide therapeutic services. And then eventually ended up serving the population as a whole there as a, as a psychotherapist. Anyway, in that five years, I worked with a lot of 15 to 21 year old violent offenders. And it was a, it was a really eye-opening experience to climb inside the heads of, of people who were super comfortable at that young an age in doing some pretty, pretty dynamic things to other, to other humans as far as actions of violence. And, and so I, the combination of that and then the gradual shifting of my client base in private practice, I ended up over a period of time I would say about 80% of my clientele in private practice were survivors of some sort of violent action. And whether it was sexual assault, domestic violence, um, shooting victims, which usually came out of the drug and gang community, but that, and then uh, law enforcement and military folks with post-traumatic stress. So after a good number of years of working with clients and reaching that point of those who kind of stuck through the difficult parts of therapy long enough to get to the other side and feeling like, Hey, I think I'm good to go now. There's, there was always a little piece of personal agency or authority left to be recaptured that we just couldn't do in the office, that sense of like physical safety. Mm -hmm. And so I started my, my kids for martial arts and I was, you know, been dabbling with Taekwondo and some other things and ran into a guy who was starting up one of the first Krav Maga schools in Houston at the time. And he was borrowing space from one of my kids, Kung Fu instructors. And that's how I met him and try to keep this short. Cause it's a very long and twisty story. I said, I asked him, I was like, look, if I send you a couple of clients to try this out, would you be willing to let them come take a couple of classes without like doing a hard sell and rolling them? Because if you do that, then I get in trouble ethically. He's like, sure. So I had a couple of clients take me up on the offer and they came back from their classes just blown away. Like this is quick. It's efficient. I never knew I could be capable of learning to define myself physically that quickly and that emotionally I could handle it. Like this is amazing. So put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. I started taking some classes and training and I fell in love with it as a, as a combat art and then the rest is you talked about in bio became um, a self-defense instructor, a Krav Maga instructor. And, you know, and I have dialing back to those five years in the, in the residential facility, I dodged a lot of, 
I dodged a lot of metaphoric bullets, like tables, chairs, people mm-hmm. coming, coming at me when you work with violent human beings and you're pressing into places that make them uncomfortable. Sometimes they decide to take you out in the process. So long before I had any actual ability to physically defend myself, I was learning how to get out of the way. <laughs> so, and you know, like most females on the face of the planet, I have my own story, uh, my own personal experience of violence as well. So all of that led me to here. Well, it is a twisty story, except it's also very clear. It's a very clear line. I'm a little amazed that, you know, as a therapist, you were in an environment dealing with violent people and you didn't have any training for yourself on, on how to keep yourself safe in that environment. But my guess is that's fairly common. Um, yeah, for the most part. So mo- most of those, and that, that this was quite a few years ago, and things have changed and improved quite a bit in the long-term hospitalization and residential type settings. That being said, there's a lot of there's a lot of crappy stuff that goes on in behind the doors in some of those places, which is one of the reasons why I don't I left that end of the industry. But it's typically the people who are get the training to do the hands-on stuff with the quote patients, the residents are what they call direct care staff. And those are minimum wage plus employees who staff the houses and, you know, transport the kids from point A to point B and are given some basic behavior modification training so they can manage the systems that are used in the group homes around the unit and stuff like that. And then they're trained in the physical restraint aspects. And back in 1986, I went through a very short version of that kind of training because we just got married and I was having trouble finding a teaching job where I'd moved to and we were broke. So I got hired as frontline staff in a psychiatric hospital. And so I got the, a little bit of that training, but that was in 1986. And then I never had anything again. And so it is, it's common in the sense that the the therapeutic staff don't always get that training because they, they're training other people to do that, the house staff. But when you're doing a counseling session or therapy session, it's, it's, it's private, it's confidential. So nobody else gets to be in the room. Right. Right. So yeah. yeah, you're alone in the room. You're digging into sensitive areas and you're a woman. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, how when you started taking the lessons that you did, how did that translate into your day-to-day life then and and your professional life? Did you right away get some aha realizations and some tools that you could use or did it take some time? Like what was the connection between when you started to learn more about how you can actually protect yourself and the time that you were spending in that environment where you actually had some real threats to deal with? Um, You know, there's a little bit of a disconnect in the timeline Mm -hmm. in that by the time I was serious about training, I wasn't, working in guaranteed hostile environments anymore. Mm-hmm. But I did periodically in my private practice a couple of times I had 
I had folks who were referred to, who were referred to me that my radar went off on like this, this could be, this could be some, this person's got violence in their background. If we push hard enough, I don't think they're going to come at me with the intention to like, I'm going to fuck you up. But from the standpoint of just becoming explosive Mm -hmm. and my training, some of which I got from my spouse who has a law enforcement background. So the combination of the two definitely in my office made me much more conscious of the, the way I staged the office, the actual physical setting in the office. There's a whole thing, you know, about how you put your furniture and where and the colors and all that kind of stuff when you put together an office, a therapeutic office. And, and, and one of the rules of thumb is that you don't put yourself between the client and the door because then they feel trapped. They don't feel as safe. They don't feel like they have freedom to, you know, if they get really upset, they can't just walk out the office because you're in the way. And, and so that was one of those things that I started to pay more attention to is like, so now the client's between me and the door. Right. <laughs> and that's, no, that's always, that's not always a great thing. So, so I, I shifted how my office was set up and just, you know, kind of changed some of my daily habits and behaviors, especially when I was doing, I, I got involved in a couple of court cases which is never something I've done by choice. It's always been because of working with some client and then, you know, there's some sort of legal action and they always want to talk to the therapist. So, um, and some of those were fairly hostile situations. So then situational awareness, paying attention to my environment and, you know, just all the, the parking lot and the patterns of movement behaviors and, and things like that. From a personal standpoint, just in daily life, the, See, how do I talk about this without saying something I'm not supposed to? So what my spouse does now is sort of law enforcement related, but he works for the feds. And so there's some things I, I can't say as openly as, as I would if he'd been, was still like civil law enforcement. Right. But there were some circumstances. There've been some circumstances where we've been as like on a, as a family, when my kids were little on alert, just like, Hey, there's been a breach you know, like a data breach or something like that and potential information compromised. So here's how you handle phone calls here. How's you handle, how you handle people who come to the door that you don't know. Here's how to handle your movements out in public, stuff like that. So that's where without really thinking about like random places that my training started to influence patterns in daily life. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And something I think spouses of people in law enforcement and in federal agencies have to deal with that a lot of the rest of us don't even think about or have any awareness of. And yet it's really cool that you you actually had multiple sources of information on ways that you could start to change your daily habits and ways you could set up your life and how you can start to manage potential threats, you know, you had different sources of information on that. And it sounds like they all sort of worked together to give you some really good tools. So, so what yeah. was it that drove you then to take it further than what you had done before moving? When I started, when we moved, when we made the move to Northern Virginia, my youngest had been really uprooted. He had not lived anywhere that he could remember 
um, except for where we moved from. And we lived very close to extended family. So I made the commitment. I won't, I won't do anything for at least six months. I'll just help get him settled. And, you know, well, I'll do the stay at home mom thing, which I do very poorly. <laughs> That's just not how I'm wired. And I needed an outlet. And so I, I took my training up a notch and found a place here locally to start training. Um, actually, it was about 45 minutes away and just fell in love with the experience on the mat because it was, I hate the word empowering because it's just gotten so overused and it loses some of its gravitas, I think. But for lack of a better word, it was super empowering to get into some like sparring rounds, some fighting rounds with one thing I remember, like this was a big eye-opening moment for me, a, a guy on the mat who was a friend, training partner, but he, man, he outpaced me like crazy. He'd done some amateur MMA fighting and I was like, I got nothing. <laughs> Just be nice to me. Um, and we'd done a, a stress drill where you basically you cover over and your partner is just is somewhat kindly beating on you. You got boxing gloves on and stuff like that. So they're banging on you and you don't get to respond. You just get to eat it for a period of time, which elevates the adrenaline and the stress and screws makes you stupid really fast. And, and then there's a, a call that allows you to come out of that. And then you have to openly fight that person until you can get fight through them to get away. And this guy was a fantastic fighter. And he was doing a great job moderating his impact so he wasn't pummeling, pummeling me into the ground, but it was still pretty significant. And I came out of it and threw a couple of shots and I was very early in my training at, at this level of fighting. And so I was, I was just a hot mess. <laughs> I'm just flailing the arms, you know, like, Oh my God, you're killing me. Um, and threw a kick and dropped him. Hmm. And I, I was, I was floored. I'm like, why are you on the floor? <laughs> 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 Matt, what are you doing on the floor? <laughs> and he's like, you're going to have to give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I can guess where you got him. Yeah. And I, I just, it was a, it was a really stunning moment because I had not considered, I'd never considered myself incapable of, uh, I want to say of holding my own. I've always sort of my, as my husband says, um, I've, at least I now finally have the skills to back up my bark um, and then I've always, I've always been, I've always had the bark. <laughs> and so it was really empowering to, to realize, like, I, I actually, I can do this. If somebody that size is coming after me, I, I can end this. Right. And that was, that was probably, that was like the turning point. Yeah. What a powerful moment. Now, was that a Krav Maga school that you were training at then? It was, yeah. So at what point did you start the school that you now have? We started over here in officially in 2012. I ran some like trial classes, like eight-week classes of friends of ours, friends of my husband, they, they worked with my husband, owned a CrossFit box, mm -hmm. and they weren't doing anything for a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon um, at, at the at the box. And so they let me take the space over and I ran a couple of like eight week classes to see if there was interest and then rented some space for a while and built built a student base. And then we eventually 
opened our own facility and, and we, we just recent in the last year we moved facilities. So we're in our new current facility, which is, I love, it's super exciting that where we are now. And so for how long did you stay purely Krav Maga? Oh, that's a good question. Maybe three years. I think I was about three years in when the little nudges in the back of my head became loud voices that we were, with my husband's influence, we were integrating some other things in prevention awareness kinds of stuff into our curriculum. But there were, the the, the longer I trained as an instructor, the deeper I got into it at the instructor level, the more I started to notice there are some things that we're teaching that are really fun and really exciting to learn. They don't have a whole lot of application outside of the military mindset that Krav is. Mm-hmm. And, and then the flip side is, conversely, there are some holes. And, and that's when, when they started as nudges and then they got to be really loud voices. Like there's, there's some really big holes. And, um, we're, we are, we say we are a Krav Maga school. This was back, back then with a focus on self-defense and, with these holes, I can't say that if I don't go find ways to fill them. So what was the source of your awareness of the holes? Like, had you crossed paths with Rory Miller at that point? Or was this just strictly coming from the knowledge and awareness that your husband had? Or like, how, how was it that you were recognizing the holes? Um, I, you know, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was super linear, like A, B, and C. I think it was a little bit of like lots of things sort of circling the drain at the same time as I'm not the biggest female on the face of the planet size wise. I'm like five, three. And some of the stuff that we were doing at the more advanced levels in Krav, when we look at it, like from the rank system standpoint, I'm like, I, I had to put myself and this was very, very good for me, but I had to put myself in a intense weightlifting program where I was lifting for an hour and a half, three days a week to, be able to pass some of the skills at the high level ranks that I was going for at a point because they were absolutely strength and power based and required you lifting other human beings off the ground, not without using momentum. So a lot of throws like in judo and jujitsu are based on capitalizing off the other person's momentum. And these were a little bit more static lifts and toss. I'm like, I, I got nothing. Like I can't, I literally can't do that. So and, and it was good to go through the weightlifting program to get to that level where I could perform those skills as a personal objective. But when I started thinking about women in general, it's like, this is who's, I, if I have to say to an average 35 to 45 year old woman who walks into the gym, if I have to tell her for you to be able to do things, be able to learn the things to fully protect yourself, you're going to have to go add this massive weightlifting program for 18 months. Right. What, what are we doing? Right. That's first of all, it's never going to happen. Right. And until and, then you're not going to be safe. Exactly. And, and you're, yes, until then you're screwed. Yeah. And, and so that really started to, that really started to weigh on me because I'm like, what are we doing here? This is, there has to be, there has to be some other things. Also, Krav is one of the things that all the different Krav systems say about themselves is that it's quick to learn. And, and it is to a point but then some of the more complex stuff, like anything that's a martial art related thing, takes time. And we 
Crop tends to draw the law enforcement guys. And so we have law enforcement and, and, and military folks who train with us and they can't, it's, if I say to a, a cop who comes in here to train with us, I'm not going to teach you any of our gun disarms until you reach the, the you pass the fifth test in our system, because right. that's when we start introducing gun disarms. And that's going to take you at least two and a half years. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, what are we doing? Right. So um, those were the kinds of things that started to come up for me personally. And I picked up um, Rory Miller's book. I had not, I had not read, I actually, I read Facing Violence before I read Meditations on Violence. And I was reading, so I read Facing Violence, was reading Meditations on Violence when a buddy of mine who runs a big Kramagal organization over in the UK happened to be here in the US. We were having dinner. And I can't remember now if he'd just had Rory out to his place to run a seminar or was about to have him. But I remember sitting at dinner and looking at John and going, I'm so jealous. <laughs> like, I'm so jealous that you get to slash got to spend a weekend with him. And he looked at me and he's like, you absolutely, of all people, you absolutely need to get in front of this guy. And so he gave me Rory's email. I emailed Rory. Rory emails me back in typical Rory fashion, you know, very short and to the point. He's like, I'm in an airport right now. And I'm going to be off comms for like three weeks because I'm going to be somewhere in Europe. So here's my phone number. Call me. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm just going to call Rory Miller. No problem. <laughs> um, but I did because I do stupid things like that. And we had a short brief phone conversation and we found a place he was going to be that was relatively close to us within the year. And my husband and I took a field trip up and trained with him. And Rory and I, after that, ended up in a very involved series of email conversations and, um, yeah. And the rest they say is history. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's, that's like your, uh, your violence dynamics, uh, birth story. Um, yeah, actually it is. I, I went to, I went to the first violence dynamics that was outside of Minnesota in Oakland. And it was a very interesting experience in a lot of ways and, um, met the other players, in the, in the biodiet team. That's also when I met Mark McYoung and some other folks. And out of that came, out of that came that me asking, Hey, can you guys bring this to our house? And, and then I got roped into teaching a couple of things at the one that we did here. And then, which was a couple of years ago. And then I got invited to be a part of the teaching team as a whole, which is a incredible, Incredible honor. I am definitely swimming in the deep end with the other guys on this team. Well, I'm really glad that you are. Uh, I think you bring a different take and a different voice, and, and you really add a lot to what's being brought to the world through that group. Uh, I'm really glad that you did that and that you're doing that. I, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the things that you encounter as you teach people, uh, both through your classes and programs at CORE and then also when you're traveling. So what are the top issues for the women who come to the classes and programs that you teach, the, the things that affect their ability to feel and to actually be safe? 
There are two, there are two questions in a way that you're asking. So I'm going to ask for clarification. Are, is it, are you asking in the seminar itself or in life in general? I would say in life in general, and then okay. secondarily, because that they're actually willing to bring forth in a class or a program. Because I know the dynamics are really different. I would say, and the feedback that we get from the women that I've worked with, the concerns are, obvi- I would say, obviously, sexual assault, sexual violence is the number one concern of the women that I encounter. And then, and, and along those lines, there is a, I find what, what I run into is a lot of mythology in their thinking about what they actually need to be concerned about and where, like what the environments are, where they need to be concerned, who the, who the bad guys quote unquote actually are. And and so, um, so one sexual sexual violence is there is the number one concern, mm-hmm. and then with that is that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in their heads that's um, it's just it's just mythos. It's not accurate. It's not true, and it it screws with their capacity to feel like they can live confidently, safely. You know, like this whole idea that. Um, well, you just, females should just never go out alone after dark. Like, oh, okay. And, you know, like, how is that a realistic? How is that positive encouragement? B, and let's forget the fact that we, it's actually 2019 and not 1819. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, so just, there's just a lot of mythology out there. So um, I think that that would hit like those are the two big pictures. That's interesting that you brought that up because my very next question is what are the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about personal safety that you encounter? The most common one is that the biggest threat is the unknown threat, the person hiding in the shadows. And the and statistics are always not entirely accurate, so we have to take all statistics with a grain of salt. That being said, 80 to 85% of actions of sexual violence against women are predated by somebody known to the target. And, and so, you know, that the misconception is I have to worry about the stranger. I have to worry about the scary person hiding around the corner in the dark alley or on the jogging trail. And not that that's one should lose all capacity for situational awareness in those environments. But the, the primary threats come from people that are known to her. And that's, I think that's the biggest myth. Right. Yes. It's the, the boogeyman in the bushes, not the best friend's brother. Yeah, that's what yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there another one that you run into that's pretty common? Um, I think, that, well, there are a handful of ones that start to bubble up underneath that one. And, and, and they range from, um, uh, for example, keychain mace. Like, I carry mace on my keychain, so I'm good to go. Um, so the use of tools, maybe I'll make it more global. The use of uh, 
self-defense everyday carry tools that are marketed heavily to women and the, and so they carry them, but they have no idea what to do with them. They've not trained with them. They don't understand the implications of using them. And so the, the myth, I guess, would be, or the misconception is because I have this thing on my keychain, I'm, I'm good to go. Right. That's, that's one that makes me nuts. <laughs> yes. I actually just did a blog post about that a month or so ago. Because that's, that's a really common one I run into, too. And one of the other ones that is, this is perhaps not a direct self-defense misconception or myth and more goes to the current ethos in our culture and our society. And that's the idea that if we, and I'm not slamming the Me Too movement, I'm going to say that up front because somebody out there is going to listen to this and immediately start gnashing their teeth. The idea that a the Me Too movement is categorically or unilaterally going to change the statistics of violence against women, stuff like that, that kind of mindset of, um, well, we just teach men not to rape, that kind of thing. And that that's going to, that that's going to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that makes me, it's, it's, it's a misconception. It's a very popular one right now. And inside of those messages, there are some things that aren't, aren't bad things to, to noodle on, think about, share, say, discuss. But it, the idea that that's going to create a massive social and cultural shift of something that's been used for Recorded history goes back, I think, like 3,500 years where sexual violence has been used in acts of war. And if we're going to, you know, like a hashtag Me Too movement is not going to change 3,500 years of history. And, and so that, that bugs me because what it does is it, it creates this sense for some people, men and women alike, that just being a social activist is enough. Right. Yeah. So this would be a good place for me to ask you to talk a little bit about your 500 Rising project. I sense a connection. <laughs> there it is. Um, I, so 500 Rising is a beautiful accident. And it, it, a couple of years ago, Oprah Winfrey won um, a Lifetime Achievement Award at one of the I don't know, Oscars, something. I don't, I don't watch the award show, so I don't know which one it was. But everybody the next day on the interwebs was buzzing about her acceptance speech, and that was really cool. And so I Googled it, and I found it, and I listened to it. And it, it was a cool acceptance speech. She speaks incredibly well. And she mentioned quite, she put a fair amount of emphasis on the Me Too movement and as, as being the game changer. And I was... And the top of my head blew off as I was sitting at my kitchen table. And I I write a blog that doesn't get a lot of press, which is fine because mostly I write it when I'm I need to rant about something. And really nobody needs to read that. So <laughs> um so I but that's my outlet. So I, I wrote this blog and it was Dear Oprah, give me five hundred and went on this rant about, you know, give me like again 
not that the Me Too movement is is not doing some good, but that it's it's not the it's not the good. It's not like this is it, so we're done. And so I wrote ran it through this blog, and basically the five hundred was give me five hundred women that we can get get at the at the round table together. So we're not necessarily all teaching exactly the same physical skills, but we're teaching the same concepts. We're teaching the same prevention. We're teaching solid, valid information and get these women up to teach this information, get them out in their world teaching another 500 women. And out of that batch, there will be women who rise up who want to teach and we get them trained and we get them out there and they teach. And then, you know, goes on like that. And eventually we'll reach a statistical tipping point where the person walking down the street or the the guy or girl, I mean, it, it, men are not the only predators out there. So male or female are targeting a female for a sexual predation. And they're going to look out at the women out there as they're running through their victim pool. And statistically, they're going to know because culturally it's so dominant that women take get good self-defense training, that the majority of the women in their target pool can probably fuck them up. Yes. That's when we'll see the statistics change. Yes. That's when the statistics will change. And, and so that was this whole 500 thing. I wrote this blog. I'm like, give it 500 women, blah, blah, blah. Eventually we'll reach a statistical tipping point and the numbers will then change. And a good friend of mine who actually built the 500 rising website that we just launched called me out on it. <laughs> and she's like, Hey, <laughs> that this is, you know, somebody should do this. I'm like, yeah, somebody should do that. And she's like, no, somebody should do this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she didn't let it go, which is good because, you know, if I open my mouth, I should back it up with something and, and not just be another keyboard warrior. So after I guess it's been probably two years since I wrote the blog. So there's been a lot of back and forth and conversation and dialogue and so forth. And it's um, so now it's a thing. The goal is to create a platform of collaborative women who have solid material to, you know, to go out there and deliver it and to become a resource. And I have some lofty plans for the idea that I don't even know how to pull off. So I don't know if they'll ever happen, but we'll see. So how, how is it happening? How are you finding the women and, and how are you um, sort of making sure that each person who joins this initial group of 500 is bringing and sharing, quote, the right stuff, the, the real self-defense things that we, that we need all women to know and be able to, to do that is that is the work in progress at the moment. We have I'm I'm doing a a day long alpha skills only seminar on September 21st here in Northern Virginia and which is to my knowledge the first of its kind. It doesn't mean that it isn't being done out there. I just haven't run into it before. And it's going to serve as a beta test to um as far as content and material on all of the, what we call the alpha skills, what people like to call the soft skills, but I don't like that term. Um, all the prevention, awareness, 
Um, Because that's a skill set. It's not just knowledge. It's like a skill set. So we're going to do that. And that'll create a beta test for some of that platform-based material. And I'm not reinventing wheels here. I'm not... I didn't wake up one morning a self-defense genius. This is all stuff that's been passed on to me. And I'm just filtering it through through a female lens because there aren't very many of us, Mm -hmm. you and I out there, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the stuff is coming out of, out of a male perspective. And then we have the next thing that's actually currently on the schedule. And this just, just came up super excited about this. There's a police department outside of Minneapolis, St. Paul that a friend of mine is connected to, and they are going to bring me in in May to do a, a four day, instructor course that will divide into like level one and level two. So people could only do the first two, then they do level one. If they can do all four, then they get through level two. And we will certify the people who get through all four days at a kind of an entry level 500 rising uh, women's self-defense instructor level. And the police department is sponsoring this because they want to put some of their female officers through it so they can run a program that we run here at our gym um, to the community just as, as a community service. Um, it's a women's self-defense workshop we do once a month. And so that's like, that's the first like hardcore, we have a date on the calendar where we're going to be running an instructor based program. And what I'd like to do, like I've talked talk to some other people I'm going to be in Boston this weekend with Kyron, with Rory. We have an instructor development course we're running. And the school there in Boston is interested in, they're doing some women's stuff that they developed off of some of the stuff that we're doing here at CORE. And so they're very interested in hosting some instructor training as well. And so that's, that's the process right now is getting some courses on the schedule testing the material because I'm sure there's going to be stuff we are going to go, wow, that was horrible. Let's not do that again. And refining it and hearing from, because the people who will be coming to this beta test kind of stuff that we do over the next year to 18 months are going to be people like you, people hopefully who are already out in the industry Mm -hmm. and will be able to, to pull these, these brilliant minds and experiences together to create something amazing. And then and then expand it out from there. So it's a, it's a work in progress at the moment. Oh yeah. That sounds just great. And I love, you know, that you've separated the different types of skills out because what you're talking about with the alpha skills, if those are the things that um, I tend to just call the mental, emotional and psychological preparation, which you know, it's it's the stuff that most, quote, self-defense classes and programs don't address, you know, because everybody wants to do the physical yep. part. <laughs> and yet it's, yep. it's like yep. the most important part to me, or at least equally important. And I love, you know, your approach of just rolling out a few smaller beta test training programs. And that's how you built your school was starting small and testing yeah. things. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of women who want to come and join this. I know I sure do. Holy moly. Of course I do. But we're going to have to get you out here out to the West coast if we can. Yeah. I'd be happy to come see Peter again. 
Yeah, I'm, I, I hope so. I'm, this is, this is really exciting. I love what I do here at the gym. I have, I have a full staff. Um, I love working with my instructors and helping them towards their goals. I love working with violence dynamics. I love working with Rory and Kyron. Like all those things are, are, I actually enjoy. And so it's cool. I like everything I do right now is stuff I like to do. But this project now that has, has baby legs, not real legs, but baby legs. This is really exciting. And I, I like, it would be so awesome to have to book some massive conference room because there's literally 500 women who are in there and, and we're having a, a organizational meeting about all of the things that they're all doing out in, in their communities and their circles and their points of contact to, to drive this forward. One of the lofty goals I have, and I say lofty because I have no idea how to pull this off. And I'm sure, uh, you know, so I don't even know if it'll happen, but I would love to find a way to have a, a, I say nonprofit end of this because I don't, I don't know any better. So maybe that's not what I want, but kind of a nonprofit end, a resource where we could like 500 rising could provide funds to send people like you, like people who want to go into some places where there isn't going to be any money to pay you for those services. And, you know, we all have to put food on the table and, and, and reach some of those populations that otherwise aren't going to get touched. I have a friend of mine. She's actually one of my instructors here who has, is part of a mission-based organization. And she's been to South Africa and Zambia and Haiti and the, over the years, we worked together to develop some curriculum for providing some of the women and girls some self-defense skills in short order because she's not there for very long. And when she goes in and it was fascinating because of one, there's cultural things you have to consider. You can't just overlay your own like this is what we do here because somewhere else it could get somebody killed right. in retribution. Right. So working through the cultural concepts and trying to develop effective things for them there. And the reality is like in, in Kaimundi, which is the, the shanty town, the slum town outside of Johannesburg, I believe I've not been my, like some instructors been over there. The, the statistics are inverted. So we say in Western society that one in every five to one in every six women will experience some form of sexual violence in her lifetime. There, it's like one in every 10 girls will make it to the age of 15 without having already been sexually assaulted at least once. Holy cow. Yeah. And in fact, to the point when this was several years ago, Amy is the, the friend of mine who goes over there. She was telling a story of, talking, talking with the women and the cultural attitude is that like some of the women will shanty town. So it's like the alleys between the shacks or, you know, not even shoulder width in some places. And she's like, the women will look over and they'll see a girl being sexually assaulted around the corner and they look away because it's like, it's going to happen eventually. You know, so why intervene? Because even if I stop it now, it's going to happen tomorrow. Right. Or the next day. So she might as well get it over with now. So there's this whole, um, just a very inverted reality based on what, what you and I get to live in. And 
and, and of course there's, and so no money, right? So it costs money to fly to South Africa and then you have to put yourself up and you have to, you know, so I'd love to have a way to develop a, a cache of financial resources so we could, we could reach into communities like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. I share that desire to bring the knowledge and the skills to women and girls all around the world is, you know, it's part of my, my path. I've lived in India and I've lived in other parts of the world. And I have friends now who are entrepreneurs who have groups that work with women and girls in different parts of the, of the world. And it's just like, I mean, we can't just look just at the U S there's, there's women and girls all around the world who are having to deal with really horrific situations. And, you know, the one you just mentioned where, or the statistics are completely flip-flopped is a great example of that. And, you know, I can put myself in, in the shoes of a woman in that situation and, and just imagine thinking, well, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, when you're mm-hmm. talking about 500 rising, it's like, yes, there is something you can do. And it's not just, you know, social activism. It's actually teaching people and giving, giving girls and women the tools, not just so that, you know, men in the U.S. or predators in the U.S. think twice, but all around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's worth shooting a dart and see what, seeing where it sticks. Yeah, it it will happen. You know, we we can do it. It just takes time and effort and resources, and I'm sure those things are are there. I'm sure they're they're going to materialize at the right times. Whoa, that was a great uh, that was a great expedition into 500 rising. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> Well, I have a few other questions. It'll be a little bit shorter, most likely. One is, what are the must-know concepts, strategies, or tools that you think women need to have? The first one is anchors into those alpha skills, like your the, the social, psychological, emotional, as you were referencing, that the women have some superpowers, and it goes to, and, and the research is soft because this is hard stuff to study, but it goes to the neurological capacity for women to read nuance well. And, and, and so we should be leveraging that. And we should also be letting everybody know like, hey, you have this superpower. You know, you're wired to pick up on cues and signals and environmental changes and subtle shifts in body language and all of those nonverbal communications that are going to tell you that you need to, like your antenna need to go up right now. So I think that's one is that the alpha skills are incredibly important. And, and, in you know, I'm like you, I, I want to almost say more important than the physical, but I, the physical stuff is really important too. Um, I just think that it's, Train the physical stuff because it's fun and you enjoy it and you want to be able to do it. Know the prevention stuff because if it goes physical, it's already a shitty day. Yeah. Yeah, I I think with the physical piece, one of the most common beliefs that I run into with women who come to work with me is I'm too small or I'm too weak 
you know, anybody who decides to attack me is definitely going to be able to overpower me and there's nothing I can do. And you and I both know that's not true. And, you know, sort of giving them the ability to discover within themselves what they really can do, just like you did, you know, with that training scenario where you kicked the dude and, and dropped him to have that moment of realization of, oh my gosh, like I actually can, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't have to do 18 months of strength training and I don't have to turn into somebody I'm not, but I actually do have the physical ability to protect myself. If I have to, I can fight. I think that, yeah, that's, absolutely. that's why I love the physical piece too. Cause it really addresses that, that other belief, you know, going back to the, the false beliefs, that's a big one that I run into. What is, um, what is principle-based training and why is that so important for women's self-defense? So principle-based training is approaching the physical skills. So it's a physical skill concept is working through the physical dynamics based on some basic physics concept. Uh, I want to say concepts, principles like leverage um, center of gravity to base, which impacts balance, timing, range, structure, like physical structure. Um, I tend to use structure as talking more about bone to bone alignment in the body. So dealing, getting into the skeleton. Those are the things that I'm, I mean, when I say principles, there's a, a list of them that we have hanging on, on the wall here at core because that's what makes all the, all the physical techniques actually work. Like if a physical technique works, it's because it's got good leverage or it has good structure or it, um, you know, the range is effective or power generation is correct or, you know, so it's all the physics. And a lot of women are, in my experience anyway, are not going to do what you and I have done, which is get on the mat and train for years. Mm-hmm. They don't have time, you know, they're, or they're not going to carve the time out for themselves. They've got littles at home and you now I have to do this for my kid and, and he's going to this and she's going to that lesson and mm-hmm. I have to, you know, right. And what I have to come to class three times a week, that's never going to happen. So in a principle based training approach, you can do a seminar so they can come for just a couple of days or a weekend or a periodic class, which it's always better if you can do more. That being said. We know that women aren't going to as an, you know, for the, for the general population. And so if we can teach women through the principles, like point out, do this because look at the leverage, look at like, if you, if you grab here and you pull here, it didn't work. Why? Because, because the leverage was wrong or you, you weren't using the structure in a way that you didn't actually get into the person's spine. You didn't compromise their structure or, and if you can, begin to invite women into seeing it from a principal standpoint, then they don't need to train for 10 years because they understand the physics of how to fuck with the body. Mm-hmm. And even as long as I've trained, it is absolutely plausible that someone might come at me in a way that I've never seen before. And if I am technique based in my head, and my brain goes through the catalog of 10 years, 12 years of training and tries to find the technique that matches the situation, A, I may not have it. And B, by the time I find it, I'm already screwed. Yeah. Yeah. 
if I can deal with things I understand about the physics, I can create, my body will create the quote technical skill to manage the situation. And, um, and in fact, recently we had, we have a student who's training with us now, a high level student. She came to us from another school in the area um, to the West of us and which is very technique focused in their training. And we were going through a, um, an environmental drill and she kept getting stuck, like really stuck. Like I got nothing. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And she was really and emotionally by the time we got through the end of, it was like an hour because she's like, nothing I know worked. And I, and she said, I kept waiting for them to do something that I recognized. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is the, she's the poster child for why training with women needs to come from a principle-based standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also for the difference between doing training that is sort of choreography of technique rather than mm-hmm. doing training that is based on understanding how the human body works, how the brain works, and then relating it to scenarios. Yep. Yep. Well said. <laughs> well, I'm curious if uh, you have thoughts on women-only classes versus mixed classes. I I shifted. I used to teach everybody, and I've shifted so that Pretty much I only do women-only things. Not not 100%, but like 95% of the time I only teach women's classes now. And I'm curious what you do and, and what your thoughts are on a women-only space. Um, that's a really that's a cool question because I just did a, a debate with Randy King as part of his one of his podcast things that he does. And that was the topic we debated. And I took the against role. And he took the four women only role. It was really interesting because we kind of took our opposite roles of each other. Yeah. And um, so the kind of bottom lining it is I think that it's, it's an essential element because there are going to be a significant number of women who are never going to step on a mixed gender mat. They're just not. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to think about training with big, hot, sweaty guys. And they're going to go, I can't do it. I'm too small. I'm too weak. I'm going to get my ass handed to me. I'm going to get laughed at. I'm going to get, you know, like all of those things are going to prevent them from walking through the door. And also in a group of women only, you're going to have women who are going to be more willing to say, okay, I got a question. So this happened to me and this was the situation. What's the solution for that? And they're not likely to do that level of disclosure in a mixed gender group. Right. And I found that like here on the met in our gym, we have mixed gender classes and we also have a women's only program. And some of our women who are regular students here also participate in the women only program. And, and there's a difference in what they'll bring up and what they'll talk about between the two sets of classes. So I think it's absolutely an essential thing that has to be provided. Also, because women face slightly different, I say slightly, in some ways, significantly different problems than men do when it comes to violence. And, and so if you have women's only classes, you can, you can tailor the instruction down right to the needs of the people that are in front of you. Yeah. And as opposed to like, hey, we're going to do a machine gun takedown today, which is in the crowd curriculum. And the women are like, 
we're going to do what? (laughs) 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 Why? (laughs) Why why am I doing this? Why am I learning this? It's making no sense to me. Yeah. Um, So, and then I do think there is a point at which for women who are going to train for any length of time that they, they need to experience some pressure testing and, and it can just be a, a regular class. It doesn't have to be like high, high level pressure testing. They need to let themselves experience the effectiveness of their skill set against somebody bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that requires, that requires the guys. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I'm really interested in your, your take on that because I've had similar observations and, you know, I mean, you started out your, your career working with, you know, women in domestic violence situations and other kinds of survivors of abuse and things like that. So, you know, that there's so many women that have experienced that. And that's, that's a population I've been working with quite a lot. And for those women, they're just not even at a point where they can even think about working with a guy around. You know, and when we're doing physical things for many of the women, like they've never actually hit anybody or anything. And, you know, they've been on the receiving end, but they never like struck out at something or tried to kick something. And the thought of doing that is, is such a big thing to get through that if they had to do that with a guy, they would just shut down and say, I can't. But doing it in a group of women is safe. You know, then it's like, oh, wow, yeah, actually, okay, good. And, you know, once they build that confidence and that level of comfort, then, you know, as you said, that you get to a point where you can pressure test it and you can you can bring in your role players. And at that point, it's really important that they know that the, the guys that are coming to work with them are safe people to work with and can be trusted. They're not going to flatten them but they are going to yeah. be good role players and that they're there in service of the women. I think those yes. are the things that, that come up for me when I think about, you know, women only, or can we do it like without having any guys around? It's like, no, you can't really, <laughs> you can't get all the way there without having the opportunity to sort of face the greatest fear that most women have, which is being confronted by a bigger, taller, stronger, aggressive man. But, you know, getting there is a journey for women who've already been through it is, things. It is a journey. I For a couple of years, I um, a friend of mine up in Sonoma, um, Santa Rosa area, she was on the board of a nonprofit, long-term adult kind of rehab program. And a lot of the women in the program, all of them had that, had experience with violence. Some of them had been trafficked. And it was, so I, I had the opportunity. I went, I think like four times they flew me in to do a, a kind of like a mini violence dynamic. So we did some of the psychological, social stuff, prevention, and then some of the physical stuff. The very first time I was out there really sticks out because one of the women in the program who was in, in the workshop with me was one of their program directors and she had gone through their program. So she's somebody who'd been a client and she'd gotten her life really, really together. And now she was providing, you know, like giving it back. Right. And being part of that program as one of their program directors. And, and I always warned everybody, like, so when you guys come back tomorrow, 
just so you know, like what we did today, we're going to take the intensity up a little bit more so that they have, so they're not blindsided. And we brought in some knife threats. And so I said, tomorrow when we come back, this is what we're going to do. Here are my training knives. They're really rubbery. You can play with them. I want you to feel them. I want you to know you're safe. And so we got started the next morning and we were doing like a feedback circle. And she looked at me and she said, I almost didn't come in today. And so I was like, okay, awesome. Thank you for being here. Like for, for grabbing whatever you had to grab inside to be here. Um, and, and how come, like, what's up? And she's like, well, my, my ex stabbed me seven times. So the idea of confronting a knife is yeah, not my idea of a good time. And so thinking about somebody like that, you, what you were talking about, like they're, they're never like, they're never going to step in a room with there's guys in there. Right. But what a gift, you know, to be able to go through a, a, a program led by a woman, you know, with other women there who have shared experience and have compassion and can support each other and actually be able to work through that, you know, and, and remove that as being such a ginormous fear and barrier. That's really powerful transformation. Yes. Yep. She's my hero. Because that took balls. Yeah. <laughs> took, yeah, for uh, sure. Amazing level of courage. Well, that's great because I was going to ask you one more question before we wrap up, which is how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Oh, I think there are a million ways to, to that center. And in the sense that we each take our own personal journey, I think to keep it somewhat global and metaphoric in a way is to, you know, we, we have a lot of trite sayings out there right now, like, you know, growth happens outside your comfort zone, all that kind of stuff. And as, as much as that's become watered down, cause there's so much of that out there, that's, there's a lot of truth in that. So do, do the things that are scary, not because you're not supposed to be scared, but because that's where you find out where, what you're made of, you know, we all have edges to our personal envelopes and it isn't until we push against those edges that the, um, the shape of the envelope actually changes. And maybe the hard thing, the hard, scary thing is picking up, you know, opening up your laptop and, and looking for self-defense programs. And maybe cause, cause when I first started training in Krav, I, I had done martial arts before and I knew Krav was a different game. It was much more, there was a, 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 a more raw sense of violence to it. And I wasn't sure I could pull it off. And I knew I needed to, and I was afraid I couldn't. And I, I emailed the instructor of the school and we must've had, I think we had an email conversation for like three weeks before I ever set foot in the school. I mean, I was that like, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do this. Um, you know, so just if the scary thing is opening up your laptop and doing a search, do that and then set another goal for yourself because that like, this is, this scares me. Okay. Do that. And because that's when you, I think what happens is we're, we've been so, so deeply socially programmed for so many centuries that of what we're supposed to be versus what we actually are, which is what we're, we are, we have massive superpowers and, whatever it takes to, to give yourself the opportunity to find out that that's truth, that's what you should be doing. 
Oh, I love that. I kind of got goosebumps just listening to you. That That's very inspiring, and it's within each person's ability to do. That's just great. Whew. Okay. All right. You ready to wrap up? We've been having such a good conversation. I kind of lost track of time, but... Um, yeah, we should probably wrap up. I'm in the office here at CORE and I, some of my staff are walking in and they're okay. looking in the door because they know they're not supposed <laughs> to come in right now. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, just two, two brief questions and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, the first one is, what three things are you most grateful for? I am most grateful for my family and, and that's all, all of the people's. You know, my parents, my, my sister, my kids, my husband, the people who are in my family. I am particularly grateful that I get to be, that I, I was born slash get to be alive now when there's, there's, so, there's opportunity to be female and be a part of making change for women, um, which those opportunities were much fewer and farther between, you know, centuries and decades past. And then what's that third thing? I am grateful for. I am particularly grateful for the fact that I am over 50 and I can still make my body work because I know a lot of people who can't and I have a few glitches physically that now I have to really take care of. And it makes me super thankful for the fact that I can wake up in the morning and put my feet on the floor and get myself out the door. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I hear you with that one. I'm 57 myself. So every morning it's like, yep, yep, still working. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, last question. So when you come to the end of your days and you move on to whatever comes after this, what would you like to have written on the headstone of your grave or in an obituary? Oh, my goodness. Huh. Um, how do I say this? I, I, um, I don't even know how to like make it as a tombstone thing, but that, um, I, I want to be remembered by being forgotten in the sense that the things that I find important, all the stuff we've talked about today is so commonplace in society that that it it seems irrelevant that anybody ever felt like they needed to give voice to it. Oh, that's And juicy. that somehow I could be part of that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's very juicy and it's going to happen. You're not going to get to that day yet. Got a lot to do before <laughs> then. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, I got a long ways to go. And you know, my I come from a family of people who live for a long time, so my and I've not ever been very kind to my body. So my mom actually said to me about 10 years ago, she goes, you know, you might want to start taking care of that a little bit because you're going to be around a long time, whether it's going to work for you or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, if, you know, just reflecting back to your self-care and, and the kind of body work and stuff that you're doing, I think you're on the right track. Well, so far, like you said, feet on the floor every morning. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Tammy Yard McCracken, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners are just going to find so much value in different parts of the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Born to be a Badass podcast. 
Thank you for having me. This has been fun. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.